Hey folks, don't touch that dial because today's guest is one of the smartest people I know and he has a habit of predicting the future. An industry under pressure, innovation in its finest hour. This is the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast, where sharp minds reveal the brilliance and sheer determination turning great ideas into new realities. Hear about how it happens in real life with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. The views of the host are expressly his own and should not be construed as the views of any other corporation, consortium, governing body, or interplanetary federation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another existential episode of the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast. I'm going to shorten up my usual opening segment today because I have a wonderful guest and I am acutely aware that he is more interesting than I am. So we want to get to him as quickly as possible. However, first, I do want to mention a few things which I must mention. The first one is when you get a minute, go back to the podcast platform, you know, the same one where you're listening to this episode right now and leave us a review. I mean, it only takes a couple of minutes and, and you can, you know, you can leave whatever kind of review that you want. If you don't like it, well, if you don't like it, I don't know why you're listening. But if you are listening and you don't like it, then leave that kind of a review and tell us, you know, what you think that we ought to be doing differently. But if you do like it, then say so, because that will help all your friends know that this is worth their time. Now, the second thing that I want to mention is if you want to capture the magic of this podcast and bring it into some sort of event that you're having, maybe a corporate event, you know, I'm open to, you know, birthday parties, anniversaries, things of that nature, whatever, whatever you look at and say, wow, we should get the oil and gas tech podcast to show up here. And if they could only do an episode while we have all of our friends around us, that we can do that. This thing travels, we can pack everything up and we can do that wherever you want. So get in touch if you think that that's a cool idea. Now, the third thing that I want to mention is that we are very grateful to our sponsor. All of the OGGM podcasts are sponsored by somebody and this one happens to be sponsored by a fabulous company called Cognite. And so if you are not familiar with Cognite, then then look them up. You can't you just Google Cognite. You can't miss them. And they are doing some fantastic things with industrial data. So if that sounds at all interesting to you, have a look at Cognite. You know, we really appreciate that they are that they're here to provide the financial support and 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 keep things running. And without them, none of this would be happening. So big thanks to our friends at Cognite. And that brings us around to our guest today. I am sitting here with the very distinguished Mr. George Danner. And we are here at the fabulous Canon on the west side of Houston, where, as you know, we record many of our podcasts. And George is the founder of something called Business Laboratory, which is now, I think, part of Valador Partners, if I'm saying that right. He's also the author of a couple of books. Most recent is meant to teach executives something about understanding automation, I think. He's also a keynote speaker and an all-around good guy. So, George, thanks for thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here at the beautiful Canon. It is, it is beautiful here. It's really nice. And we're, we have a beautiful, sunshiny... 
Houston almost spring day today, and we're, we have lots of window lights, so this is great. Actually, George and I have known each other for quite a long time, but just because I know you doesn't mean that other people know you. So, you know, you can go to georgedanner.com and learn all about you, or we can listen to you talk about yourself right now, because everybody likes to talk about themselves. So the personal bit, I actually just noticed that when I was looking up something that you went to A&M originally, right? Was that, I so did. Are you, are you from Texas? Or I am from Texas. Are yes. I, I grew up in a little town called Texas City down by the coast here, about 45 miles away from Houston. It's on the road to Galveston. That's the only thing yes, I know it is. about. <laughs> that's right. You pass it on the way to Galveston. You pass it way on the way back. back. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. Grew up in Texas. I went to school at A&M right out of high school and then proceeded to live in all different kinds of places in the country and then came back to Texas. After I got out of graduate school at MIT, I came back to Texas in 97, have been here ever since. Ever since. So I'm one of those people who I've been in Texas you know, my parents moved here when, so, you know, I couldn't control where I was born. That happened somewhere else. <laughs> and then my parents moved here. I don't really even want to say, I don't want to say all these numbers together in the same sentence, but I will anyway, in the early eighties while I was in high school. So, um, so you're practically a native. My whole adult life is here. You know, my kids were born here and everything. And so. you stayed here. So. And I stayed here. And there's that old, what's that saying too about, I wasn't, Born in Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. Or something, <laughs> right, something that's like. you. So, of course, we have listeners from all over the world, and Houston is one of the, you know, is energy capital, we like to call it here, but we also have oil and gas hotspots all over the world. And actually, we have people that listen to the show and leave comments and, and reviews really from all of the usual places that you would expect to hear. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool. You know, Michael, that's kind of the great thing about the energy industry is they're almost isn't a region of the world and not anymore that isn't yeah. touched by it yeah. and doesn't support it doesn't have strong employment associated with it it is it's a bit of a cliche to say but it is truly a global industry and i've had to travel to dubai and london and all the places that you're talking about yeah to do business just in, it, right in energy. yeah yeah which is always which used to be a, a lot of fun and hopefully that'll become fun again. I found a couple of nuggets on your website. And whenever people say things about themselves on their website, I always like to, I always like to throw a couple of those uh -oh. out there. Okay, so, here so here's comes. what you say about yourself. <laughs> well, first of all, your website says that you're also a futurist. And there are at least a couple of people out there who believe honestly and sincerely that you have a crystal ball mm -hmm. about predicting what kind of, I'm not going to ask you to make any predictions right now, okay. but what does that all entail? Like, how do you, how do you get to be a futurist and, and what sorts of things do you like to make predictions about? Well, that, that's, yeah, that's a fascinating question. You know, the qualifications to be a futurist is that you are able to spell futurist and put it next to your <laughs> resume. It's a uh, new word. So some people don't know how to spell it. True. <laughs> and there are those people, you know, out there who, who do, you know, attempt to make sort of strong predictions about the future. You know, I started getting into thinking about future events when, when I was, in fact, at MIT, and I, I took a number of courses in strategy. And what's happening, Michael, is in the, in the world of corporate strategy, it used to be, in fact, that you would get the smartest guys in the room and gals in the room, and you'd ask them their opinions, and you'd use all that, you'd, you'd collect all that and say, okay, well, that's what the future is going to be like, so let's now align the company along that future, and then we'll succeed. Right, right. In the strategy work that I did, and this is in the late 1990s, they were attempting to turn that completely on its head. 
mm-hmm. and essentially say we can't predict the future because all the attempts to do so ended in pretty dramatic failure. And you can pick up any average newspaper and see that. Right. Rather, corporate strategy is looking at thousands of plausible futures. Hmm. So I could look out it's there. It's like multi-universe theory? Is that what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not, not unlike that in the sense that, you know, if we sat down today, we could think about a future where, you know, the economy is weak or the economy is strong in every grade in between. Sure. We could think of a future where government regulation is very strong and very weak in every gradation in between as well. And, you know, we just add up all those different degrees of freedom. And what are we confronted with? We're confronted with thousands of plausible futures. So the real trick to being a futurist or future-proofing your company, essentially, is not so much predicting the future, but anticipating thousands of these possible futures and then testing your strategies against that. And so what we're looking for, Michael, is this idea of robustness. Yeah, yeah. A robust strategy is one that works pretty well in, say, 800 out of 1,000 futures instead of the strategy that works spectacularly well in 2 out of 1,000 futures. Interesting. So, I mean, that is a common at least well understood methodology for doing lots of other things, right? We do we do Monte Carlo simulations yep. for various like engineering types of applications or you know, of course, in oil and gas, people have wanted for a long time to do stochastic modeling like for subsurface interpretation, right? Mm-hmm. The computing power was the sort of the constraint on that. But applying that same that way of thinking to what's the future gonna be like, I mean, conceptually it makes perfect sense. You have a set of parameters and you measure the values. and you, but, but actually, those parameters that you just mentioned, how do you figure out what's the ruler for those, for those parameters, right? Like, how do you know that I'm a, a five on the you know, government interference scale? Right. What does that mean versus what's a two versus what's a nine? Well, you know, any good strategy is, is a balanced dose of art and science, right? And what I just described to you was kind of the science of how right, to right. think about strategy. The art part of it. Uh is, in fact, going back to those experts and asking them, quizzing them about, okay, parametrically, what do you see? And then then driving their human insight into these models that then can take that into account. But it's also just as important to look around the tails, the edges, the envelopes. It's something that we call extreme conditions testing, where you say, okay, look, this This could be the most infeasible thing that could happen, an asteroid, you know, coming and hitting into the parking lot. But what would we do if an asteroid, in fact, hit in the parking lot? What kind of actions do we have? What kind of counteractions should we have? Are they expensive? Are they cheap? Yeah, yeah. You know, Michael, I think there's going to be a lot of this kind of thinking, good thinking, about what happened to us recently with ERCOT. Yeah. And yeah. how they, yeah. may, I don't know. I'm not an expert in running the electricity grid, but what I could well, say. Well, no one is apparently. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have friends at ERCOT. I take that back. We, we, have, we are very proud of our, our independence when it yes, comes to our, to our grid. And, and it's, it's nice. And to, yeah. I, I have no idea if ERCOT did a good job. I have no idea if they did a bad job. But what I can say is they're going to do forensics on this and they're going to say, okay, how robust were the policies leading up to this big freeze? Was this ever anticipated, even if it was an extreme condition? Right. And what is the cost of insuring against that? 
you know, if the cost of insuring against an extreme condition is extraordinarily high, of course it doesn't make sense right. to right. pay for that insurance. But if the cost is low or can be made to be low, that's something to look at. That's called extreme conditions testing. We bring that into this sort of new era of strategy and decision-making, yep. going for robustness rather than being the smartest guy or gal in the room. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, And, that, and I think that gets into the business laboratory story. But before we get to that, I do have another Another nugget. Another nugget from your- Throw it at Nugget me. of goodness from your website. So let's see here. So your website says that you are a seasoned, complex problem solver with global corporate influence in the U.S., Great Britain, West Africa, Saudi Arabia, and Mexico. <laughs> yes, I have traveled to all I don't all even know what I think places. you're going to say about that, but I just thought that was an extraordinary statement. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you. You know, big problems are everywhere. Sure. And we get phone calls, and part of our job is to answer the phone and go wherever that exotic problem takes us. Sure, we've solved problems in energy and oil and gas. That's about 40% of our work. But we've worked with law enforcement. We work with the FBI on, you know, certain very complex sort of white collar type cases. Sure. We worked with an NFL team on some analytics for them to help drive game performance. I mean, wherever there's a hard problem, that's where we go. Did you and, come up with that whole hold the clipboard in front of your mouth uh, approach? Because <laughs> that seems like that's that's gold right yes, there. Yes, of course. That's all mine. That's the, <laughs> we call that the George Danner notebook, yeah. you know, hide your face routine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to throw you off. So, so complex problems all over the world. And no, it's actually, I kind of knew this about you from when we had had worked together a little bit before, sure. but it's interesting. It's cool to be the person that you can say, okay, what do I, what do I do? I just apply, you know, my own brain and these other methodologies and things to these really complex problems. And that's what I do. But the interesting part is what happens on the other side, right? Because like when you solve a problem, presumably mm -hmm. the problem's been solved and now something's something's different for those people going forward. So have you been able to see, you know, as opposed to, I'm going to say, and I, and I spent many years in the consulting business, so I know all the jokes about consultants and I, <laughs> and I have some of them framed on my wall, but, but you know, it used to be the old thing about the consultants come in, they're supposed to be so smart, they do all this stuff and they leave and nothing changes, right? So, but I happen to know that when you leave, things change. So what, like, talk about that a little bit. They like, do. What, what, what looks different on the other side of this problem solving? Yeah, sure. So I've had a 37-year career, and pretty much all my career has been doing this thing that we're talking about, which is sort of deconstructing firms using, using models, using mm -hmm. data and models to kind of break them apart into their constituent pieces and then understanding how each piece works and how it fits together with the next one and so forth. I've, I've done that my whole career. And I would say that of the models that I've built of companies, uh, some portion has been very successful. Mm -hmm. Some portion has not been successful. And, you know, I went through a bit of a kind of a deep dive about mm -hmm. 10 years ago in looking at, okay, you know, littered across my career has been some great successes I'm very proud of, some things that hasn't gone well at all. What's the difference between the two? Right, right. I do the same thing with podcast episodes, by the way. Yeah, oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you'll look back on this. Oh, man, how, how did I miss how did that? I, how did I miss that? So I started looking at kind of the, the common threads. You know, how, how, where did I succeed? Where did I, where did I fail? And it really, it kind of comes down to one 
sort of common theme. When I used these models, these mathematical representations of companies, nowadays we're calling them digital twins. When I build a digital twin of a company, if I somehow am able to use that to tell a story, tell a story punctuated with data, that's when my models have been embraced, used, the insight drove other operations. And yes, like you were saying, I could sit back and I I can see that company was really, really transformed by it. Where I was just creating numbers to answer some random question, I just shoved numbers back at, at the person asking for it. That was not as successful. Yeah. So that kind of started us on a journey to building visualizations of these models. Right. Now, and and that that took off and became sort of a life of its own because there's quite a science behind visualization. But, you know, if we're building a model of a company's supply chain, I mean, we quite literally show the planes and the trucks and the ships. Yeah, yeah, kind of I remember seeing one of those, right, yeah. If we're building a model even of a of an insurance company or a bank, we're, we literally have a visualization showing the money flows back and forth right. and goes into this bucket and that bucket. It is really powerful. It's like a superpower to take something that's largely invisible. Right. Flows of natural gas, for example. Yeah. And make it visible. And now we have better intuition as to what that model is yeah, trying yeah, to tell humans us. Humans just interact with that much better, right, than the Absolutely. abstract sort of numerical representation. You bet. Yeah, but it really, Michael, it all comes back to telling a story, telling a story using data. That's all a model is yeah. is really really should be doing. So the two books that I wrote that you mentioned were really all about that realization. And gosh, I need to get that kind of message back out to this community of people. Yeah. Even if they're just building models in Excel spreadsheets, they really need to hear that message. Right. Cool. Yeah. That storytelling thing that pops up in so many different ways, but so many things in business are more successful when people tell stories in the context of whatever it is they're trying you know a podcast you know for example is you know and i do go back and listen to previous episodes and and i look at and try to understand what was good about this one what was what wasn't good what caused me to just not even put that one out whereas this one over Mm -hmm. here is and the storytelling component is a big part of it and we can tell by when we look at you know how many how many listeners we have and the downloads and stuff like that but and some people have a natural knack for weaving a story into whatever it is they're doing. Yes. And some people don't have that natural knack, as is evident at times, but everybody has a natural act for receiving a natural knack for receiving the story. Like not everybody's good at telling stories, but almost everybody works better when they when something is presented to them in us in a story. Which There's is really no question about that, Michael. Telling us people are ready to receive stories. It makes logical sense to them. And particularly when you use data and facts and images, yeah. visualizations to tell that story, it's it's all all the better. Yep. And yep. we're really lucky because often in our projects when we're building models for companies, we're telling two stories. Here's the story that happens if you stick to the status quo. Yeah. Here's the alternate story that happens if you 
take I, this action. You I saw this, this movie. Company. They end up in the old west at the end. Yeah, <laughs> that's, right. that's right. That was actually a three-part <laughs> sequel. But yes, exactly. You yeah, know, different right. alternate futures. Right, right. It's rare that we just tell one story. We're telling several sure, different stories. Sure, makes sense. But that does work very well in a lot of. I mean, good salespeople know that you know visuals and storytelling works better. I see it pop up more and more just in different aspects of business. Speaking of business, I mentioned this thing at the beginning that you started this thing called Business Laboratory. Yes. I always forget, is it laboratory or laboratories? It's laboratory. Laboratory. Business laboratory. There's only one. Yes. And there's not like a boy's laboratory and a girl's laboratory. It's just <laughs> the one. I don't think so, no. <laughs> Business laboratory. So, and some of, and I know that some of what you're talking about here in building models and the visualizations, that was all part of that that business, which I think you're still doing, right? Only with Valdor. That's partners. right. I started Business Laboratory 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago now, 2009. And had a tons of fun running that company. And in February of 2020, my company was bought by Valador Partners. Right. Valador Partners is a merchant banking firm that invests in companies. So now we have a two-part mission. Our mission remains to work with companies as we did before, just picking up the phone and and going and solving that hard problem for companies. And the other is working on the portfolio companies that Valador buys. Right, right. Yeah, that's a nice, yeah, that's very symbiotic there for you to be able to do that together. So you mentioned, I'm bringing this around to something a little bit more oil and gas specific because this is the oil and gas tech podcast and we want to yes. we want to get to that and Although it's all a this fascinating stuff, industry all this stuff is so fascinating though but you did mention i know by the way your website george lists one two three four five six seven eight nine eleven industries that mm-hmm. you've worked it does say you must have had a lawyer write the copy for this because it says <laughs> the industries include but are not limited to <laughs> <laughs> This is a long list. But the very first one on your list is energy, which, uh, of course, you know, oil and gas energy it used to be we, we didn't think of those as the same thing, but that's that's changing. I'm going to put all these things together now. So you have your uncanny future telling capability. You have the benefit of all these this kind of modeling methodology, multi, multiple future things. And you have a lot of experience in this industry and there's a whole lot of weird, crazy stuff going on in this industry right now. So let's talk about that a little bit. Just from your view, like where are we and what's what's happening next? Oh my goodness, Michael. I mean, I have never witnessed in my professional career an industry under so many different pressures all at one time. It says that in the, in the intro to my show, by the way, that we're an industry under pressure. Okay, the, yes. The, the uh, nice pre- Australian lady says that with the background music at the beginning. Right, so, so you have you have people writing for you, too. Yeah, so, so, but your point is, it's not just one, it's not just one source of pressure. Oh, my it's gosh. It's pressure from it's, so and, many different places. And it's fleeting, and it's, it's very dynamic. And keep in mind, I worked in the airline industry in the 80s and 90s, so... Which was, yeah, uh, no... Which, which no. was under just unbelievable yeah, kinds of, yeah. of pressure. And this is even greater than that. So you've got regulatory issues. You've got climate change that these companies are dealing with. You've got ESG issues Mm -hmm. that they are grappling with. You've got operational issues. You've got technology that has shifted unconventional wells, hydraulic fracturing. Right. Are we fracking? Are we not fracking? Are we fracking? Yeah. Well, and and it's brand new. Right. It's brand new. I mean, nobody can say that, you know, I'm a 40-year veteran of doing that because that is a relatively new technology. 
And so I guess, Michael, I, I have a, a bit of optimism about the industry because this is an industry that's proven over a century that it has been able to change and morph and adapt to a lot of new conditions. I mean, this is unprecedented that we're, we're under now. But I, I think a large part of the ability for the industry to grapple with all of these pressures, the answer is going to be found in data and analytics. It's not going to be in hardware. It's not going to be in how much land you own or how many assets you have. Right. It's going to be how smart you are. And I don't mean brain smart. Right. I mean how you have a sense and respond kind of capability you've built an automated silicon-based sense and respond capability in your company to adapt very flexibly. And that's not something, frankly, that the industry is known for. It's known for scale. It's known for capital. You know, it's known for manpower. It's known for these things. It's not necessarily known for flexible and agile, but I think that's going to change. Or finessing, you know, a lot of different bits of data to try yeah it's more of a brute force i think it i mean it certainly sounds like the industry wants to go well it's hard to tell sometimes whether the industry really wants to go in that direction or it's just the echo chamber of all of the solution providers and consulting companies and all of that you know and the deloittes and the mckinsey's and the guys who are all saying that that is the future do you think is it is that really like in the hearts and the minds of the people who are driving the business from the inside, or is that something that we're kind of projecting onto it? Well, I think it's the pure economics of automation. You know, I, I really don't think, Michael, that you can't stop this onslaught of automation no, for that's, sure. that's yeah. coming over us. So I can't stop it. It's going to happen. So the the question just remains, you know, to what extent am I going to exploit it? So you mentioned a lot of these other players and there's a huge ecosystem sort of pushing for data and analytics. And a lot of people have cited, you know, things like Moneyball as a, as a just kind of a nice story and, and how that's projecting onto industry. And, And that's absolutely in fact happening. But I believe that the only way for big parts of the oil and gas industry to survive is through unprecedented levels of automation. Yeah, yeah. That certainly does seem to be in keeping with, like, I don't know how any other way, I don't know how else they're going to do it, right? How are you going to make the economics work if you don't do that? The same thing, and that is one thing that the industry people in this industry do understand, which is how to evaluate the economics of something and to know, does this produce positive financial results at the end or does this produce negative in spite of the dry holes that have been drilled in some of the projects but for the most part the industry is pretty good at evaluating the economics of, it is. Uh, of something and figuring out does this work for us or does it not yeah so i think you're right i don't i don't think there's any way to i think they have to pursue those things and there are so many there are so many new tools available now like the underlying technologies, you know, of just raw computing capabilities coupled with cloud computing, coupled with IIoT, like all these innovations in the last 10 years or something like that create a whole bunch of tools that that were not available, right, even before. Absolutely. And I do affirm your thoughts there about the industry is good about sort of looking at the economics of what they do and, and then driving that into their operations. 
What the industry probably is not as good at doing is really truly embracing technology and looking outside of its own industry. Yeah. For example, it's getting a little better that, that it can creatively yeah. copy. Yes. Right. Oh, absolutely. It's because it used to be. We don't. Yeah. It used to be completely. It used to be. Up, yeah. Yes. Very sort of. We're the oil and gas industry. We're special. And yeah, there's a lot of special, unique things about the industry that need to be respected. Right, right, right. But at the same time, it is very valuable, very valuable to sort of look out at other industries to see what they're doing, creatively adapting that for their own purposes. And frankly, you know, when I step outside of the oil and gas industry myself, and I look at what's happening in pharmaceuticals and semiconductors and telecommunications and financial services, they are doing some fascinating, fascinating work addressing risk, lowering cost, creating these sort of real-time sense and response systems. I know the industry is not sitting still and they're moving in this direction, but I would just encourage them to move to see those even things. faster. Yeah. So a little, a little sidebar on that and a little plug for OGGN. We're launching a new podcast sometime this month, probably. It will it'll go live. Yours truly is the host. And it's similar to this one, but instead... We want to talk to people not so much about the technology, but we want to talk to people who have had success moving these digital initiatives forward, not just getting the stuff deployed, but actually seeing the changes in the business. Sounds like you're going to be telling some stories. Telling some stories. That's right. It's actually the name of the podcast is going to be Oil and Gas Digital Doers. So everybody everybody look for that one coming out. But one of the things that we talked about and kind of coming up with the idea for this show is, you know... Maybe we ought to also find some people from other industries who have had success with some of these things that are relevant in this industry and have them come on and talk about how they succeeded. And you know, I think that would be valuable for people in this industry to hear about, as you just said. I mean, it's exactly what you said. So, so if you know any people in those, since, <laughs> since, since you're, as your website says, George, you are an expert in in 14 different industries. So if you know any people in those- I know a few, the, I know have, a few who've who have done had well. success, then we wanna have them on that show. Okay, I wanna get to a couple of other things here that in, in, in my notes from, from our extensive planning that we put into this particular episode. At some point when we were ch- chatting earlier, we talked about ESG and the ability to, to bring capital investment back into the industry. Yes. I don't remember what we said when we talked about that, but what are what are your thoughts there? Well, you know, now that I'm I'm part of Valador Partners, I'm getting to see uh, that's the connection, right. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm I'm sort of getting to see sort of companies that in capital markets sort of come coming to us and talking about these things. And I'm hearing this just groundswell of pressure <laughs> being yeah, applied yeah. to oil and gas firms, large and small around ESG. And essentially the picture that's emerging to me, just as just a simple mathematician that I am, is capital is the cheap kind is flowing away from the industry. The cheapest right. capital, of course, is is institutional capital right. and public right. capital. Sure, sure. And so investment firms have adopted these very strong ESG policies. And and again, for those of our friends out there who don't know what we're talking about, ESG is environmental, social, and governance. Right. These are policies designed to improve kind of this whole shareholder, whole stakeholder idea. Greater good. Yes. And so investment firms are basically saying, if you don't have a good ESG track record, 
I'm not going to invest in you. So can we pause on that for one second? Please. Since you are, since you are connected into that world, and I've, I've, I've dabbled in that world a bit, but not so much lately. Why are they so becoming so almost religious about that? What's the driver that says this is a deal breaker if you're not doing this? I think, and I won't get into the political dimensions of this, of which there are many. But political dimensions rarely impact everybody universally, right? Usually there's some people who who sort of buy into them and some people who don't, but you're seeing this across the board with all of them. Well, that's right. So, you know, the mathematician in me wants to just kind of set aside sort of sort of the politic political drivers of that of which they are very strong and say, okay, you know, what's happening here? Right. And the reason why I think is where there's smoke, there's fire. So in a sense, if you are a company that has a very good ESG track record, you are likely a good company in every other way as well. Ah, okay. So they're extending that into, hey, we want to see good ESG measures. Now, there's mm. the other aspect of it, which is, well, hey, this lowers risk. So the, more the direct effects, this lowers risk for the firm. If you've got good right. ESG policies in place, it makes you a better corporate citizen. You will have higher regard, and that means things to, to a lot of people. So there's just the good, just for good sake side of it. But there's also the idea that, look, good companies at their core are good companies everywhere. Yeah. So the ESG is just a little window into yeah. what makes a great company. Makes sense. I mean, that is how investors evaluate companies because you know, there's two ways to evaluate a company. One is to go work inside the company for two years and see what it's like, right? But they don't usually have that kind of time. Right. So they have indicators that they look at that say, based on our experience, you know, winning and losing in this game, <laughs> we know that these specific indicators mean these broader things behind them when they when they look at and that's how, how they right. size things up. That's right. So yeah, I've been the target of the darts thrown at those indicators <laughs> to try to find the holes. But that was the three metaphors altogether. But so it's critical. And we were on a train of thought before I pause you there. But well, I think where we were going with that was, okay, so what's next? All right. So, so we've got this ESG problem. Yeah. We're a company, we, you know, we really need to, to do well there. And what we're finding, having lots of conversations with lots of senior leaders about this, is they're kind of at square one. Sorry, they're at square zero, yeah. actually. <laughs> and, and, you know, they're looking at all these different frameworks and there's this sort of cottage industry of so-called consultants that, uh, right. that, that provide their expertise around ESG. I'm not besmirching them, but what really needs to happen here is just plain old measurement. Right. They don't even have the first level metrics. Let's take the E part of the ESG emissions. Right. They really don't have the first level metrics of what what is the carbon footprint of this company? And I have a vendor who sends me an invoice. They just delivered 100 widgets to my dock door. Okay, what was the carbon footprint of that behind that invoice? So it's not just the company. It's also this sort of ecosystem around them. That's a big challenge. Now, again... Yeah, I mean, we don't have, we don't have historical, like, well-known ways of measuring that kind of stuff, right? No, we don't. If you want to, if you ask how how much liquid is flowing from the, through this line from here to there, like we know how to measure that, right? We've been doing that for a long time. Yeah, but this, these are new. Are there even objective units of measure, right, that you can apply to these things? It's, well, I think we're just getting started, Michael, on this whole journey to make ESG less art less what they call greenwashing, you know, just kind of a few fancy KPIs just to impress the potential investors to making a true science. 
out of ESG inside a firm. And again, I'm biased, but I think data and analytics has a has huge to be, right? role to play here. It really comes down, it's a math problem. ESG is a math problem. It's what you measure and how you take those measurements, interpret those, and then drive those into action inside the company. And most companies that I talk to aren't even yet at the we are measuring things yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. Right. You're at, it's, it's like asking, it's like going back in time and asking somebody, I want to know how many, you know, flow rate, how many gallons per minute are happening here. And the person hasn't even invented gallons yet, much less, much less a way of measuring how many of them are moving. Right. We, we, we don't even know the funnels, but, right. but it doesn't stop people from making very bold, clear claims, right. That say, we just did this and it had this result or we, or you did that and it caused this and, but it does seem early. It seems like there's a lot of statements being made that can't possibly have good math behind them. You know, I'm sure that is happening. I'm overall optimistic about the industry. I th the industry is recognizing this. They know it, it's a big factor for sure. Absolutely, for them. right, right. So they're starting to pick up the phone and, and call. Yeah, I was because various this, people. This is a great this is a great opportunity for you because this is exactly the sort of problem that you have. Precisely. Uh, and like you said, it has to be solved. They want to solve it. They have to solve it. I think everybody's like hearts in the right place on this, but it's such a complex but lucky for them, you are somebody what did it say? You're complex solving complex problems <laughs> since nineteen oh five. So <laughs> And this just happens to be one more to add this to the pile. More. That's fantastic. So I wanna we're get, we're kinda getting at that point where we should wrap up and if we keep talking, people will change the channel. So although <laughs> although maybe not, because this is this is really fascinating stuff. But one of the things that comes up a lot, you know, we're talking about change, the industry being under pressure, it's moving in different directions. And this comes up a lot where people when it comes to people and themselves and their careers and their jobs. In fact, by the way, another plug, OGGN is launching a new podcast called Careers in Energy. And so we're actually going to have a podcast. That's just, and I'm not hosting that one because you don't want that, but talking about careers, mm -hmm. right? And all different things. I don't know. And one of the things that comes up when people are thinking about this right now is, well, there's the fundamental question of maybe I ought to get out of the oil and gas industry, right? Mm -hmm. I've, had, I've had people contact me on LinkedIn. One example, a guy been a geophysicist for many years. So mm -hmm. as you know, geophysicists are also like, they know enough to be dangerous when it comes to computing, right? Like high performance computing and things like that. And he was wondering, maybe I should get out of the industry and get into cloud computing. Like, how do I, how do I do that? Right. And we always advise people like, don't bail out of the industry. The industry needs the smart people that it has, but what you might need to do is is get some new skills, some new experience, maybe reshape your job and your role a little bit. Now, this is not an industry where people change themselves frequently. So what advice do you give to people about how do they, what kind of like skills should they look to acquire? How do they kind of reshape themselves? Mm -hmm. I know you can't be prescriptive and go down the line and go, well, if you're a geophysicist, then you ought to do this. And if you're a drilling supervisor, then you know, but like, is there a model for this? Is there like at least a mental model for how do you approach it? Sure. And I've had the same experience as you've had, Michael. I've right. had people say, I've had enough of this. I'm out of the oil and gas industry. The, all those ups and downs, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. I've heard that over and over again sure, from some right. industry veterans. And it's really sad to see people who have built their careers around this industry. And it was so vibrant and so much fun and so challenging and thrilling and, yeah, yeah. you know, full of risk and, and all of that. I guess one of the things I would, I would implore people to do is 
don't leave the industry yet. We need as many good minds as we can. But you're also right that the same old skills that we've had for the last 70 years are not going to be kind of the skills that are going to be valued going forward. And my own observations from oil and gas companies, large and small, is that there's really kind of one skill that wins out above them all. Okay. And I'll call that systems thinking. Right. Now, systems thinking, there's a sort of a formal definition of systems thinking, but I'm going to use the informal definition, which is, you know, a person who sees a company, who sees an asset or a network of assets, and their brain is sort of drawing the connections between them. They look at a car and they don't see a car. They yeah. see, oh, you know, there's a, there's a suspension, there's a braking system, there's a hydraulic system, there's an electrical system. Their brain sort of picks it apart and sort of diagrams out what, what they see in this asset. So it's, it's people who almost have this sort of x-ray vision to look at a complicated asset. It could be a, you know, a terminal. It could be a midstream set of pipes. It could be a set of wells. It could be a gathering system. I mean, you know, any, right. any critical componentry of the oil and gas industry, they look at it and, and they start breaking down the pieces. Now, yeah. why is that skill so important? And, and I would just let me interject. I think a big important component of that is not just seeing the pieces, but how the pieces interact with each other, because that's how you can sort of be standing on one side. And I understand this really well, right? And the way for me to run around to the other side and become useful in a different way is because I understand how those things interact. Right. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So... So that, that, is a, that is a critically important skill because the challenge that is in front of the industry right now is automation. How do right. I automate as much as I can? So it's as if, Michael, you walked into a factory and I said, okay, automate it. Well, what's your first mental reaction to that. It's going to be, oh, well, all right. Okay. What do we have here? Uh, okay. We've got a machine over here and it produces a widget and it goes down this conveyor belt yep. to this other machine. You're starting to think about the different pieces of componentry and all the different human workers that are yeah, interlaced yeah. there. And that's the kind of thinking that we need to bring into the oil and gas industry to think about how would I run this? more sustainably if instead of 10 people here, there were five. Mm -hmm. Instead of five people, there were three. Instead of three people, there were zero. Right. These are the kinds of ways that we need to think about how to run the oil and gas industry. Now, automation in oil and gas has been, well, kind of like oil and water. Yeah. <laughs> it, it has not necessarily been a fertile ground for automation, say, like the automotive industry. But, you know, people didn't give up on the automotive industry when it was down, down, down in the early 1980s. Yeah. People stuck with it. And it emerged. And it emerged victorious. It's smaller than what it was. But look at what we, we have. The quality Tesla, is so much better. We yeah. have Lucid. We have Ford, right. which is very strong. All, you know, all, the big three that are, are very strong companies these, these days are putting out a superior product. So the, the auto industry survived and thrived in a different form. It was right, definitely transformed. Right, right. So I'm saying to those folks, don't give up on the oil and gas industry. It is going to transform. But think about the kind of skills 
that are going to be required in a highly automated future version of the oil and gas industry, because I think that's what's next. That's essentially at our doorstep. Yeah, that's really, that's good advice, I think. In fact, that's probably a great place to wrap up. Although I have the thought that we're going to have to have you come back occasionally just to see if your predictions you know, come true. We now have, All right. we, we now have a different set of tools available to us so we can, we can actually go back and actually that would be fun. Maybe I'll, we'll get you to come back in a, in a while. Yes. And, and you can play I'll old replay clips the segments of from me. me. Now, George, this is making these outrageous claims. This. Yeah. I will tell you that there are people that if we did that with, it wouldn't be pretty, but, but, <laughs> but I think, I think your, I think your reasoning is sound. What about if people, I'm about to go off on a, on a whole other thing. I got to, I got all these things I got to say to wrap this up. But before we do that, if people want to learn more about you personally, about what you're doing, about business laboratory, about the future of, of the universe, what, how do they, how do they learn more? I mentioned you have a website, right? I do. So there's a couple of websites to mention here. I have a personal website, which is georgedanner.com. Right. Also my company, validorpartners.com as a website where, you know, you can learn about what my team does called data science services or DSS. You can learn more about them. You can get a hold of my books. My first book was called Profit from Science published in 2015, and my second book, The Executive How-To Guide to Automation, published in 2018. Those are available on Amazon, other bookstores, and so forth. So those are places where people could Got go if, they, if they're deeply interested in this whole subject of data and analytics as it applies to industrial applications. Excellent. Good. Thank you. And we will, as always, put all of that in the in the show notes so that people can reference that. And I think that's good. That'll kind of wrap it up for today. So I really appreciate you making time coming out here on this sunshiny day to the Canon. And you said this was your first time to be in the main area here. Of the yes, Canon, I came right? to the Canon when it was this little cinder block complex across the street. And yeah. now it's this beautiful, it has, fabulous, it, cavernous building. It has really grown up. It's fantastic. So all right. Thank you. I'm going to move on to a couple of other things here, but appreciate you coming in. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it. I've loved being on. All right. Thank you again, Mr. George Danner. Going to have to get him back on here before too long and see if his predictions come true. You know, I got a feeling that he's going to be, he's going to be pretty spot on. All right. A couple of more things that I just need to mention before we load out. And the first one is thank you again to our sponsor, Cognite. They make it happen. So if you don't know about them, check them out, Cognite.com. Also, also, the Oil & Gas Global Network Street Team. I only have one question for you if you're not part of the street team, and that's why not? Why aren't you part of the street team? Because, I mean, to begin with, I think you get a cool hat. But, but on top of that, you also get to be involved with OGGN, the industry, you get to do good things, and you get to know personally the very valiant and noble and fearless Mr. Warren Spiewak, who leads the street team, and he has told me that this is the year. This is the year to be on the street team. So look for that. There's a LinkedIn group, I think. Look for the LinkedIn group. You can't miss it. OGGN Street Team. Also, you can connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or all the usual social spots. You can also check out our website, which is done by our wonderful friends at Midnight Marketing. They make us all look great over there. They make us look fantastic on the website. So also, if you need somebody to do that for you, I can tell you where to find them. And finally, well, finally, two more things. One is 
as always, big thank you to our audio wizard, Mr. Emin Fikic. He's actually in the magical land of Bosnia, and somehow from that magical land, he makes us sound fantastic. And he also fixes all the mistakes. In fact, I think, I don't know this for sure, but I believe that there are times when I have been faltering and Emin has, has cut me out and he's dubbed in his own voice to sound like me and he's, and he's fixed it right up. So thank you to Emin and also, also our ever charming and yet persistent producer, Savannah Wilson. She's the one who takes all this magic that's happening right here with these microphones and everything and she makes it like show up in your AirPods so that you can listen to these podcasts. And she does it for all the podcasts. It's a crazy, hectic job. So thank you to her. That is going to wrap it up now. And I'm actually going to hand it over to Savannah right now, who is going to tell you about the events we have on deck. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN. And here are the events on deck for March 2021. This month, we only have three events. But if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, our OGGN Here and Now live event on March 4th at Churrasco's in the Memorial area of Houston, Texas, and the Texas Wildcatters Open at Black Horse Golf Club in Cypress, Texas. Next up, we have our three online events, Sarah Week from March 1st to 5th, Transformathon from March 1st to 7th, and the TAMU SBE Career Enhancement event on March 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for March. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.